Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, loyal law school professor Jessica Levinson. I'm joined by my friend and the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong, and we have a lot of legal and political news to talk through with you. First, let me say happy almost Pi Day for you math nerds like me out there. It is almost March 14th. And Joseph, happy almost one of the best days of our year, daylight saving time. How do you feel about it? With every passing minute, we draw closer to daylight in the evening, which, as I've said many times, is one of my favorite things. I know it's one of your favorite things, too. And let's get this out of the way right out of the gate here. My voice is a little hoarse, so setting aside all puns and dopey jokes, we're just going to have to roll with it. So as you said, Jessica, so much news to discuss on this episode. One of the bigger ones here after final approval in the House on Wednesday, President Joe Biden on Thursday signed a massive $1.9 trillion, that's trillion with a T, COVID-19 stimulus bill that included $1,400 in direct relief payments to many Americans who qualify. The stroke of his pen fulfilled a campaign promise Biden made to aggressively fight COVID-19 pandemic and get the American economy humming again. Also included in this bill is billions of dollars to help schools and colleges reopen and funding for vaccine distribution. And as you know, Jessica, I also cannot wait for my vaccine to be distributed to me. Americans should feel real effects of this bill before too long as unemployment benefits were set to expire in a matter of days. Shortly after Biden signed the bill, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that those $1,400 payments should start to be dispersed to eligible Americans as soon as this weekend, and they will continue over the next several weeks. Now, citing the substantial cost, Republican opposition to the stimulus bill was unanimous, and one Democrat, Representative Jared Golden of Maine, voted against it. But it's a definitive win for the Biden administration. And to do a little bit of uh, rallying of the troops, President Biden gave a short address last night to talk about the stimulus package and mark the one year anniversary of the U.S. COVID-19 shutdown. Jessica, what were your thoughts about what he said in that address? Relief. I mean, honestly, when I saw President Biden up there and he did some basic things that, frankly, we should expect, but we don't anymore because people like me have a little bit of PTSD from the last four years. I mean, he said, I want to acknowledge what happened. And a lot of people lost loved ones over the last year. And that if we didn't lose a loved one, we all still lost something. I mean, the thing to me is just the idea that he said, I'm going to be honest with you. He used words like facts and truth. And he said, listen to scientists, listen to experts. He he name-checked Anthony Fauci. And he said, trust this man. He took head on the idea of vaccine hesitancy. And he said something that I think is so important. We tend to, I think, view democracy as something that we're supposed to engage in every two to four years. Every two to four years, we show up and we vote and we say, okay, as long as we voted for the right person, then we did our civic duty. And he said, I'm asking you to help me. And that's how we should view our government, as having an ongoing conversation with us. So I I was very relieved. You know, there's a um, conservative Washington Post columnist who's also a self-described never-Trumper. And she tweeted, it was so cool to watch a presidential speech without a knot in your stomach and a throbbing headache. And 
Amen, Jennifer Rubin. What did you think, Joe? Oh, man, Jessica, I had so many things to say about this. I mean, I was almost emotional watching. I mean, look, the bar is so low. Watching a grown-up connect together complete sentences in front of the American people. And also worthy of note, this is his first address, his first primetime address as president to the entire nation to mark that one-year anniversary of everything shutting down last March. We all remember how distinctly how that happened. Points on style. I dug his tie. He's an older gentleman, so he rocked that kind of stylish tie, which I thought was pretty cool. Now, the one thing I thought right out of the gate, the former president, Donald Trump, is the 10 million pound gorilla in the room when it comes to the presidency right now. And Biden made one reference without referencing Trump himself. He said, quote, a virus that was met with silence when he was talking about what Donald Trump was doing up until just about a year ago. Now, Trump, we all know, knew how serious this virus was, but then didn't take it all that seriously. So like you were just saying, Jessica, there were so many things to chew on there. You know, he did something that politicians rarely do, which he acknowledged the potential of a negative thing happening. Look, we've all been through hell with this pandemic. And he said at the end, you know, things may get worse again. So that's the kind of straight talk that we've been hearing from Joe Biden for a long time. I wrote down a whole number of quotes here that he said, tell the truth, follow the science. He said the word grateful. He talked a lot about we as Americans joining together to fight this thing. And one of the big takeaways from this is that Biden said he listed five things that we would do to try to work our way through this pandemic and get out the other side. And one of them that he said, this isn't one of the more newsworthy things, he said, all adults in America by the end of May will at least have the eligibility to get the vaccine, which is a big thing because he said that he wanted to have 100 million vaccinations in America in his first 100 days. That's the bar he set for himself. And it's looking like uh, all the experts are agreeing with him that it is possible to far exceed that number and get a lot more people vaccinated. But the last thing, Jessica, before we move on, I wanted to add was at the very, very end, he said a simple phrase that I think people may not have noticed. He said, thank you for taking the time to listen, which to me, by any measure, is humility, something we have not heard out of the executive branch in America for some time. As I said, it is just such an overwhelming relief to have a president who gets up there and talks about things like truth and science. And I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, but none of what we're praising has anything to do with partisan affiliation or your political ideology. This is about prizing facts and truth. And I am grateful that that is what we heard. And as we promised, we have a lot of legal and political news to get to. We're going to talk about two cases related to the death of George Floyd, one, an officer who's being tried for his murder, another for a reporter who was arrested while she was following protests uh, in the wake of his death. And we're also going to talk about an abortion ban coming out of Arkansas and the fact that Judge Merrick Garland is uh, now our attorney general, a new title for him, Attorney General Merrick Garland, and what that means very quickly, what that means for the Department of Justice. So, Joe, where should we begin? One last bit on that Biden thing. I forgot to mention this. He used the phrase second gentleman twice in regards to Kamala Harris's husband. So that's kind of a new precedent set there. But as you said, there's so much in today's jam-packed episode. Let's get down to business. First up, Jessica, Arkansas just passed a new, very restrictive abortion law. Can you start by telling us a bit about that? Yeah, so basically that's what you need to know. Arkansas has passed and the governor has signed a law that would ban all abortions except in cases of uh, saving the health of the mother, saving the life of the mother. And 
This is the nation's, at this point, most restrictive abortion law. And when Governor Hutchinson signed it, he said, I know this goes against Supreme Court precedent. And he said, I know exactly what's happening here. I'm going to sign it because the legislature is overwhelmingly in favor of it, because I'm pro-life. But he said, look, this is setting up a challenge for a Supreme Court precedent. And that's what this case is about. It's about saying there's a new Supreme Court. It's not just a 5-4 conservative majority. Now it's a 6-3 conservative majority with Justice Amy Coney Barrett on the court since October. And... I think that it's not going to be this case because, frankly, it's so restrictive that it probably goes too far. And what's going to happen is that um, a trial court will just say, no, this is so clearly against Supreme Court precedent that it's struck down. But I think there will be another case soon that doesn't go quite as far, but still clearly burdens a woman's access to obtain an abortion. And one thing I did want to mention, we always talk about, will Roe versus Wade be overturned? The famous 1973 case, Roe versus Wade. The current standard is actually from a 1992 case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And that standard says, states, you can't implement abortion laws that would create an undue burden on a woman's right to obtain an abortion. Now, what's an undue burden? It's whatever five members of the Supreme Court says it is. And so What I predict is that the way we make the promise of access to abortion hollow is not that we have this big moment where Roe and Casey are overturned. It's that there are laws that do so much to burden a woman's right to choose, but the court concludes, well, that's not an undue burden. That's not an undue burden. On the other hand, I'm notoriously terrible at predicting these things, and The Supreme Court may just say, you know what, Roe and Casey, they're bad precedent, and it's up to states. If they want to ban abortions, they can. So this is a big uh, wait and see, but this question is hurtling towards the Supreme Court, probably in not this particular law, but another lawsuit. So it seems somewhat inevitable. Now, Jessica, I have a procedural question. When it comes to these kinds of challenges, seeing that there's probably going to be one coming up in the next few years, and seeing how the composition of the Supreme Court is going to be pretty conservative for a lot of years to come. How long is that challenge, that inevitable challenge, going to take to get its way to the Supreme Court? I'll give you a lawyer's answer. We don't know. So um, these cases, you know, once a law is passed, then it's challenged. And then typically a lower court, meaning a trial court, will say, look, I have to follow Supreme Court precedent, and I'm putting this law on hold. Then There'll be an appeal to the Court of Appeals. Um, They will say, I have to follow Supreme Court precedent. And and depending on the way the case is brought before the courts, they can kind of bounce up and down the federal system for a little bit of time. I will venture a guess that within the next 18 months, we will see another big abortion case that comes before the court. And... um, Because I think, like, if you are pro-life and you really do not believe that the right to privacy in the Constitution protects a woman's right to choose, there's not a good reason to wait. This is a very conservative court, and this is the right moment. So I I just can't imagine it goes too long before that there is that big case that really questions the foundation of Roe and Casey. 
But let's move on to the next topic. Now, the Derek Chauvin trial is getting rolling. Chauvin is the former Minneapolis police officer accused of murdering George Floyd, the aftermath of which saw nationwide marches and protests last summer. Mr. Chauvin, uh, Officer Chauvin, had 22 prior complaints or internal investigations during the almost two decades he served as an officer. So this isn't the first time that he's bent the rules. Chauvin was not the only officer charged in the death of Floyd. He's just one of four, and there's an ongoing FBI investigation that has to do with civil rights violations. So the story here, you probably all know it. We all lived through it. George Floyd allegedly used a counterfeit $20 bill to buy cigarettes, and the police were called. Now, they arrested Floyd, put him in the police car. Floyd allegedly resisted arrest and appeared under influence at the time. And after being placed in that squad car, he pushed himself outside of the other side of the police car and says that he's just going to lie on the ground. Now, cell phone video shot by bystanders showed Officer Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, which is enough time to asphyxiate a human being. Floyd was handcuffed and pinned to the ground at this point. Now, when it came time for the medical examiner to take a look at this, he said the death was a homicide, but that the officer's use of force and fentanyl, methamphetamine, and underlying health conditions may have also played a part in his death. Other officers, as we said, were charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder and secondary manslaughter charges. Now, those trials are set for August. Now, Jessica, can you tell us what charges Officer Chauvin is facing here, or former Officer Chauvin, I should say? I can. And of course, we're going to acknowledge that this is a case that is incredibly important to all of the people who are involved. And it's become a case that is incredibly important to the nation as well. I mean, this set off a summer of reckoning when it comes to issues of systemic racism and inequality in the criminal justice system. And I think this case in a lot of ways will be a bellwether for future cases that deal with police officers um, use of force. And I ho- I certainly hope that we don't see even one more of these cases because each one is a tragedy. And this case, you know, getting to the specifics of this case, there already have been some weird legal things that happen, or sh- I should say a lot of legal things have already happened. I'm going to, as I say to my students, I'm going to try and make it brief. So the punchline is that Chauvin was originally charged with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter in May. There was a public outcry. People said, that's not serious enough for what we saw on this video. Attorney General Keith Ellison said, you know what? You're right. We need a more serious charge. We're adding second-degree murder. Now, what happened right after that, or shortly thereafter, is The judge here actually dismissed the third-degree murder charge in part because it was his understanding that third-degree murder means that you have to engage in an act that's dangerous not just to one person, but to a group of people. The examples, you know, firing a gun in a train, that's dangerous to a group of people. Driving into a crowd of people, again, dangerous to a group of people. Now, there was a Minnesota Court of Appeals case that said, no, actually, third degree murder, it's okay if it's just dangerous to one person. So that charge has now been um, added back. And so, again, what Chauvin's facing now is second degree murder, where he could uh, do up to 40 years in prison, third degree murder charge no more than 25 years, and second-degree manslaughter up to 10 years. So he's facing a lot of serious time behind bars. 
Man, he surely is. Now, Jessica, wasn't there a plea deal in this case somewhere? There was. uh, Before the Biden administration, there was a plea deal in this case. Chauvin agreed to plead guilty to third-degree murder and to go to prison for more than 10 years. But then Attorney General Barr essentially unwound that plea deal. He rejected it. Now, what does he have to do with this plea deal? These are this is a state criminal case. Why is he there? Part of the plea deal was that the federal government would not add any additional charges for civil rights violations. You just mentioned this briefly. And Barr said, you know what? Attorney General Keith Ellison is just taking over from the county prosecutor. I want him to decide whether or not he wants to go to trial. I want him to decide whether or not he wants to negotiate a plea. And as a result, no plea deal. And we're now going to we're going to court on this and there will be a trial. Okay, so trial is imminent. Bar is gone. What is each side expected to argue here? Yeah, so I think the prosecutor's claim pretty simply is going to be Officer Chauvin, you killed George Floyd. And Chauvin, you used neck and upper body restraints in seven previous arrests. And what the prosecution is going to say is in four of those arrests in the last six years, you went beyond what was necessary, which is another way of saying the prosecution wants to introduce evidence that Chauvin routinely uses more force than he needs to. And that in this case, in fact, this amounts to murder. Now, the defense will argue No, this is a reasonable use of force, uh, that George Floyd died of a drug overdose, not just Officer Chauvin's actions. And this case, I think, in particular, could potentially be won and lost in jury selection because both sides are really going to have to be careful to see if they can find jurors who will be open to their arguments. And that's a, look, this is a case where we all have heard about it And it would just strain common sense to think that people don't have some ideas about the case. And they might view Chauvin as a cold-blooded murderer. And this is just a long way of saying we don't ask people to suddenly become ignorant. We ask people to be able to walk into a courtroom and apply the facts to the law and follow the jury instructions, to be impartial, not to ignore their life experience, but to bring their life experience and use that experience while they're following the law. So how long could that jury selection process take and what will it look like in this case? So jury selection could take through the month of March. As I said, it might be the most important thing, legally speaking, that happens in the case in the sense that um, jury selection is where often is where cases are won and lost. And so we're going to be looking for 12 jurors, four alternates. There was a 16 page questionnaire that was sent to potential jurors. That is not typically the case. And again, both sides are trying to figure out, will these potential jurors be open to the arguments that I'm going to make? You know, questions surrounding what are people's views of Black Lives Matter, of Blue Lives Matter. Did you attend a protest in the wake of George Floyd's death? Did you have a sign that you held up? Trying to figure out how strongly people already feel on one aspect of this tragedy. This is not normal that we would have a 16-page questionnaire. And this is the most high-profile police brutality case that we've seen in a very long time. Now, what happens in jury selection is that first the judge is going to ask questions. 
than the defense and then the prosecution in this case, each side gets to strike people to say, you do not get to be on the jury for something called cause, meaning, which essentially means they're biased, that the person walks in and says, no, I can't apply the facts to the law. And then each side gets a certain number of so-called peremptory challenges, which mean I don't really want this person on the jury. And you can use those challenges as long as it's not for a discriminatory purpose, meaning you're not just striking African-Americans or you're not just striking Asian-Americans from your jury. So uh, Chauvin is going to get 15 peremptory challenges. The prosecution will get 19. And... Uh, I think a lot of people will be looking to see if this jury is in fact diverse. And I hope that it is because I think there will be serious questions of legitimacy if it's not. So not, um, certainly it's going to be a case that I absolutely, I'm sure we will talk about in the future. And I think next we're going to talk about a, a related case dealing with a reporter who was covering the protests. Exactly, Jessica. Let's move on to something that took place in the aftermath of all of this. So we have the case here of a reporter, Andrea Sahori. She is a reporter from the Des Moines Register in Iowa's capital city. Sahori was found not guilty of failing to disperse and interfering with official acts this week after she was arrested and pepper sprayed by a police officer while covering a protest in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd last summer. Now, can you please remind us of the legal considerations and issues here? Yeah, I think for a lot of people, they hear reporter arrested, and the first thing you think of is First Amendment and the freedom of speech. And that actually didn't play as big a role in this case as people might think. The questions really were about whether or not the reporter heard the police officer say, you need to disperse, and whether or not she did, in fact, try and interfere with her arrest. There was some allegation that she basically moved her left arm away very quickly. And One of the things that I think is not particularly well understood is that if the police give a valid order to disperse, everybody has to adhere to that, whether or not you are in the process of news gathering, meaning whether or not you are a reporter. Now, this case might question that. Um, Again, there is no reporter's privilege for, no, sorry, police officer, I don't want to disperse. And we could have, I think, a very rational conversation about the fact that reporters serve an incredibly important purpose in these situations. You can imagine that if there were a situation where the government might not want you looking over their shoulder, some of those situations are going to look like this, right? They're trying to control a protest. Um, There have been allegations that some of the police officers went way too far in trying to control that protest. And so you can imagine a situation where the government doesn't want reporters there. And that's why we need to be very worried and aware of where they can be. So, you know, in short answer to your question, look, she was acquitted. The issues here dealt with dispersal and interference. But the broader conversation, which I think is very important, is one about the First Amendment and freedom of the press. Thank you for tying all these knots, Jessica. I appreciate that so very much. Let's move on to something that does not deal with George Floyd. We've got some news in the makeup of our government here. The Biden administration finally has an attorney general. You may remember the name Merrick Garland. His name first became known on the national stage after then-President Barack Obama nominated him to fill the vacant Supreme Court seat after the death of Antonin Scalia on February 13th of 2016. 
then-Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell publicly stated at the time that he would hold up any Supreme Court hearings until after the 2016 president's election under the false pretense that doing so was any kind of normal. Now, given all that foot-dragging, Garland's nomination sat for 293 days when it eventually expired at the end of the 114th Congress. And just weeks later, Obama's successor, Donald Trump, nominated Neil Gorsuch to fill that vacant seat on the bench, and that's where he sits even now. Now, fast forward to a new administration in which Joe Biden tapped Garland to lead the Justice Department. After a series of delays, the Senate voted 70 to 30 to confirm Garland as Attorney General this week. Garland has a long career as a federal appeals court judge, and he's taking over the helm of the Justice Department in the midst of the investigations into the deadly January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, and after four years of Donald Trump using the Justice Department as anything but an independent wing of his administration. And in his Senate hearings, Garland stated that he would defend the independence of the Justice Department. So perhaps we'll see a return to relative sanity there. Now, Jessica, do you have any thoughts on Garland from around the legal profession water cooler? I I just had this feeling of when was the last time I was around a water cooler? And the answer is probably about 54 weeks ago. I think that the most important thing that Merrick Garland is going to have to do is say to the American public, I am your lawyer, not the president's lawyer. And he knows this. When we talked about his confirmation hearings, he said something that I think was so important, and I'm going to paraphrase, of course, which is we not only have to do justice, but we have to have the American public, we have to give them the faith that we are, in fact, doing justice. And he knows that this is about restoring our faith in the rule of law. He knows this is about reasserting the independence of the Department of Justice. It is, of course, about the cases he's going to have to look at and the policies he's going to review. But it's also about saying to the American public, this is what a true Department of Justice emphasis on justice does. And I I think I may have said this before, but one of the things I was so taken with during his confirmation hearings is his dedication to public service. And he was very professional throughout the entire confirmation hearings. And then he got very emotional at one point. And a senator said, why do you want to do this? And he said, this country saved my family from persecution. And I have a certain skill set. And I want to use that skill set to give back. And um, again, to me, that gave me an enormous amount of optimism about where this department will go um, going forward. So we wish now Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, luck. I suspect this will be his last confirmation hearings. And I personally thank him for sitting through another, well, really his first round because he was denied those hearings for the Supreme Court vacancy. And Jessica, as always, thank you for answering all those questions. Thank you for having these conversations with me. I appreciate it so very much. Stay tuned to Passing Judgment, where we will be talking about all of the Derek Chauvin trial as it rolls past us in the next several months. As always, you can find Jessica on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. You can find the show at Past Judgment Pod. You can find me at Indepday, I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y. We appreciate all of you listening so very much. Please stop by the places where you find your podcast to rate and subscribe and give us comments. We love hearing from you. So we wish everyone a happy week and weekend.